welcome to our verse-by-verse study of the Old Testament book of the minor prophet Zechariah. The book of Zechariah contains more visions and prophecies regarding Christ and the end times than all the rest of the minor prophets combined. The role of the prophet was to tell God's people what God thinks about them and what they are doing or not doing. God cares about his people and he cares about everything in their lives. The book of Zechariah reminds us of God's constant thoughts and teaches us about his plans for the future so that we have hope when we need it. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the book of Zechariah as we look for Christ in the Old Testament. Good morning, church. Turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 10 as we continue our study through the book of Zechariah. We're going to do something a little different this morning. I'm going to invite Debbie Denham to come up and share something, and then then I will start my message. So, Miss Debbie, please. Good morning, church. Good morning. <laughs> um, I was asked this morning to um, share a little bit about an orphanage. And this orphanage is in Soway, which is on the island of Kupang, which, was, uh, which is part of Indonesia, where we go and share um, in our ministry. Um, it is one of, maybe you don't know, like 17,000 islands make up Indonesia. And it's also where um, our church plant is uh, for Shine the Light International. And I just wanted to share with you a little bit about this orphanage that we support there. And um, they have a course clear from infant to high school, I believe it is, <clears throat> staying there. And the, the one area that I wanted to share with you about in this orphanage is the infant department. And um, I wanted to share with you, too, a little bit about why so many of them are there. Um, there, of course, is the usual financial issues that they have there because Soe happens to be, and Coop, which is on, you know part of Kupang, is happens to be like one of the the poorest islands of all the islands. It's they call it the armpit of Indonesia because they're so poor there, unfortunately. Um, and so, of course, there's financial issues that um, send make families send their children there. Um, there's also the issue of the fact that um, there are a lot of demonic practices that go on in Indonesia and on that island too, even though that one's actually called a Christian, Christian island. Um, but anyway, one of the satanic practices is that um, when a mother gives birth to a child, they purposely let the mother bleed out and die. And so there's overabundance because of that of these babies in this um, area of the of the uh, orphanage and so one of the times when we were visiting there um, and Randy and I were in that area where the infants are and we noticed that well first of all it's 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 real shocking because it's not anything you'd see here um, the way that that they're taken care of. Uh, sorry if I get choked up here. Um, how sterile it is. How uh, how bad it smells even. Uh, 
And um, so anyway, I, I tried to choke myself, keep, keep myself from choking over all of that and, um, and be strong. And um, picked up one of the babies and because I love babies so much. <laughs> You guys know, if you know me, you know that, and I love children, period, and um, so I was so excited to hold one of them, and um, I picked up this baby and sat down in a chair to, to talk with the baby, and the baby was past, like, tiny infant stage where, where normally when you'd, you'd hold them and hold them out so they could see your face and talk to them, they would usually most babies will make some kind of expression, some kind of nuance that you know that, you know, they're happy to see you as you, as you are them, you know. There was absolutely nothing. Baby after baby that I picked up, it was the same thing. Um, and it totally crushed my heart. <laughs> we left, and I wasn't the same. And um, same experience, Randy had the same experience. And so... We went home, we talked about it, we prayed about it, and um, we decided that we would present it to this church, <laughs> the need that, that that's there for some more help there, because a lot of it was that they had so few ladies for how many babies there were that there was no time for holding and touching and talking to them. And anybody that knows anything about children know that that's so vital and even in their development even as you know they get older that that's a, a big uh, issue and so so we talked about it prayed about it and presented it to this church and this is probably Randy estimate seven or eight years ago and um, the need for having a few more you know hands to help and share and touch them and so you guys responded, and we were so, so blessed to get to use that money to hire some, some more help. So that all happened while Randy and I were still back home for a while before we went back again. And so the first thing I wanted to do was go to that orphanage and, and get to see those babies again. Um, another thing that the church did that was really, really sweet was um, do a lot of, like, uh, sewing and... Um, also making of toys for them because they literally had none and Tia knows about that. Tia was a huge help in organizing all of us that don't know how to sew as well as she does <laughs> to help and um, there were several ladies that offered their help for that and to, to even go back and see those little toys in their crib to me was overwhelming <laughs> just to think that they actually have something to roll over and see if somebody isn't holding them, was a big deal to me. So, so we we got a chance to to do that, and we got a chance to go back to see what that looked like then. And amazing was the difference and um, the change in those babies when you'd pick them up and you'd you know smile at them, they'd smile back, <laughs> and it was like <laughs> you know such a, a beautiful thing to see. And um, I thought about when we were singing this morning that last song, if any of you paid attention to the, the line that says, you're the defender of the weak, it made me think of, of our, our beautiful God and how he came to their rescue. It wasn't anything of Randy or I or any, 
anybody that we took over there ever, it was that the Lord on high, the most high God, looked down and saw those babies and said they need help. And so then he touched our hearts to be just a little part of that. And I just want to thank all of you for your support because it's through your support that it allows us and others that have gone over and others that stay there all the time and um, minister to those babies to um, share God's love with skin on and, um, and also to share the gospel and his beautiful love letter, Lord, to, to all of us that, that he's given us. So I just thank you for this. Um, Randy said three to five minutes. I'm like, I don't know about that <laughs> to share with you about this. Well, that was not a prelude to a request for money, so just know that. The church has been faithful to um, support two workers there, and their sole responsibility is that nursery. So that has been something we've been doing. The purpose why I had, had Debbie share that, I was actually going to try to share it myself, but I would have not done it nearly as well as she did, is I wanted to ask a question. Why do we care? Why, why do we care about babies that are 7,000 miles away that we will never see? Why, why do we care about the suffering of others? Why, when we see somebody suffering, does it, does it affect us in some way? Why do we do that? Why does that happen? Why does it bother us that somebody so far away, that, that, that you know, these, these babies so far away have, have motivated us to take money and send it over there every month? We send money over there to support those babies. Why do we care? What causes us to care? And the simple answer is compassion. Compassion. Compassion is the deep awareness of the suffering of another accompanied by the wish to relieve it. Another word, a synonym of that is pity. If you could have looked upon those babies and realized they were absolutely helpless, there was, there was nothing that they could do, and, and honestly, there wasn't really much anyone could do for those babies. They were They were helpless. Because we are made in the image of God, all of us, every single human has the capacity for compassion. Everyone. Everyone has the capacity to care. To look at the suffering of others and realize that that's wrong, that there's something, something needs to happen. Some response needs to happen. Someone needs to care. But because all of humanity has been corrupted by sin, compassion is lacking in the world. People don't care. People can look at some of those things and not care. It's not my problem. Somebody else's problem. And even when there is compassion, 
Even compassion is corrupted by sin. One of the most prevalent ways that we see that in our, in our culture today is in a thing that's referred to as virtue signaling. Anybody heard of that term, virtue signaling? Um, it's the expression of a moral viewpoint with the intent of communicating good character while neglecting the actions required by that moral viewpoint. It's acting like you care, for example, changing your profile pic in, in, in relation to some social issue or something that's going on in the culture. Communicating to the world, I care about this. This is important to me. And then not doing a single thing that reflects that care. It's just looking for social credit. It's looking for the, for the people to look at you and say, oh, look how much they care. Why, what is compassion? Well, first off, it is a characteristic of God. God cares. God is compassionate. He's especially compassionate for his people. Psalm 103, 13 says this, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Now the word pity gets a bad rap. Because we look at the word pity and we say, I don't want your pity. What is pity? What is pity? It's looking at someone and saying they are helpless. They're helpless. Those babies in Indonesia were pitiful. They had absolutely no way of helping themselves. One of the things I'm learning, and uh, I'm guessing the ladies are learning this, and a couple other people are going through this book with me, Humility by Andrew Murray. One of the things it teaches us is that we are absolutely helpless without God. I am growing to love the idea that I'm pitiful. And the more I understand how much I need God to care for me, the more open I am to what he wants to do in me and through me. In today's text, we're going to look at, see how much God cares for his people. We understand something. God cares for his people in a special way, in a way that he doesn't care for the rest of the world. He shows compassion in ways that he doesn't show the rest of the world. It's important for us to understand this. And then we're going to look at how that, what that means for us as individuals, as, as, as God's people through faith in Jesus Christ. So let's pray, and we'll thank God that he cares for us. Heavenly Father, we do come thanking you, knowing, Lord God, that without you we would be lost, knowing without you that we'd be separated from you for all of eternity and, and, and destined to... to be utterly pitiful with no hope of anything other than being pitiful. We praise you, Lord, that you care. We praise you for your compassion. We praise you, Lord, that you don't leave us like we could have left those babies there in Soe. Just left them there to, to do and be whatever they ended up being. But Lord God, we couldn't do that because you've done something in us that we need to understand better. And I pray, Lord, that you help us to understand how much you care for us and what that means for us, Lord God. So we give you this time, and we give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in Zechariah chapter 10. 
And at the beginning of this chapter, right in the very beginning of it, 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 there's a verse that connects it to the previous chapter. I say this whenever we're in Bible study. Don't get hung up on the chapter breaks and the verse numbers. They're not inspired, okay? And so, you know, the people who put the Bible together, they put chapter breaks where they thought it was best. That doesn't mean, it doesn't, they don't mean anything. It just makes it an easy place for me to decide where I'm going to start and end a message. That way I'm not preaching for 24 hours straight, right? Which There's a couple of you that would like that. No, none of you would, actually. None of you would stay. So let's pick it up, verse 1. Ask the Lord for rain. In the time of latter rain, the Lord will make flashing clouds, and he'll give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. Now, the Lord is calling them, the basic idea here is that the Lord's calling them to put their trust in him and in him alone and what he's what he's telling them to ask for is something they need they need rain to flourish right i mean if you're if you're an, uh, in that time you know agriculture was a big part of what their you know they, how they made a living was by growing things you know growing plants and growing animals is how they made a living and they needed both to survive they needed both to flourish and to, and, to, and for that flourishing they needed rain and so god's saying ask me for the rain Ask me for what you need to flourish. Well, why should they have to ask for that? Well, it's very simple. The same reason why he asked us to pray. For the things we need to flourish. Does God know what you need to flourish? Yeah, better than you do. You know, the, sometimes the things you're asking for aren't, aren't for flourishing. They're for, they're for something the opposite. What is the opposite of flourishing? I don't know. I need, a, I need, somebody, I need somebody with a dictionary really fast. No, just kidding. I'm sorry? Withering, yes, we don't need to be withering here. Okay, so, so God knows what you need to flourish, but then he says, ask for it, God says. Why? Because it forces you, it teaches you, it, it compels you to trust him. When we're asking God for anything, it's asking him, it's, it's putting our trust in him, even though we know he already knows it, but he wants us to bend our heart toward his. And so when we pray, it's an expression of faith to teach us to trust God, including in those things that, he, that should just be natural. You know, the latter rains, that, that was part of what happened. You know, it was, it was the rain that normally happened in that season. And God says, ask me for that. Ask me for what should happen naturally. I want you to trust me. Verse 2. For the idols speak delusion. The diviners envision lies and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wend their way like sheep. They are in trouble because there is no shepherd. The people wend their way like sheep. And, and, and what that means is, because it's not language that we would normally use, it means they're wandering around following their nose and stomach wherever it leads them. No direction, no plan, just going wherever their fleshly desires lead them. In the next verse, the Lord is going to rebuke the leaders because they are not leading correctly. Zechariah introduces a, a metaphor here in this verse the metaphor of a shepherd as leader. And it's one of the things that we use in the church that we see that the role of the leader, most leaders in the church are called to be shepherds. And not just to lead, but to shepherd the flock that God 
has entrusted to us. And so in this, this chapter and the next chapter, Zechariah is going to compare good versus bad shepherds, good versus bad leaders. And in, here in this verse, he's saying that because the people have no one shepherding them, no one leading them in the right way to live, no one leading them in the way that God would have them to go, no one, no one you know, helping them to understand God's plan and will and way, they are turning to pagan ways to determine how to live and how to go. You know, the idols and the, and the diviners and all of those, those are pagan acts that, that would be used to try to determine you know, the will of whatever God they were representing. It's like they have no, no shepherd, and so they're looking around. And, and brothers and sisters, we do the same thing. And if we're looking to some, you know, we're looking to social media for, you know, for direction or, you know, you know, you know, our, 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 you know, crystal loving friend who, you know, who, 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 you know, charges up their crystals every morning so they know, you know, all that stuff is pagan nonsense. And all it will do is cause you to wander around aimlessly and get nowhere really fast. God created people to flourish under the care of a compassionate shepherd. That's we are created. We are created to follow a shepherd. Who was created to do that? All of us. All of us. That you know, and and depart, it doesn't matter where you are in your organization, or where you are in the family, or where you are in the community, or where you are in the church. You're created to follow a shepherd and and the one you should be following is a compassionate one i have a whole aside i can go off on and i'm going to stay right here on this track right here what happens when the people don't have that shepherd the result is wandering 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 sheep cannot flourish they weren't made to do that. A wandering sheep cannot flourish. They need a shepherd. You know, we are created to flourish. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life, they may have it more abundantly. Created to flourish. Jesus noticed that, that this was the state of the people of his time. And Matthew 9, 36 said this, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Brothers and sisters, I'm guessing that we have felt the weariness of people around us. I'm, I'm hoping that you're not feeling it, but you might be. The weariness and, the, and, the, and being scattered we look at our culture, we can see it. It's because they have no shepherd. They have no shepherd, no one that cares for their well-being, for their flourishing. We actually do have someone who cares. God cares. Cares enough to send a good shepherd, a great shepherd. God cares so much that it really bothers him when the people he's appointed to be shepherds 
don't do it right. Verse 3, my anger, this is the Lord speaking, is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the goat herds, for the Lord of hosts will visit the flock, his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them his royal horse in the battle. The, my anger is kindled, he says, the Lord says. I will punish them. You know, I, as a person that I believe God has called to be a shepherd, I take this verse pretty seriously. I, there's nothing I want to do that angers God. And I certainly don't want to experience his, his, his chastisement, his punishment. But it should serve as a warning for anyone who is in any place of leadership. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and a leader anywhere, in any circle of influence that you're in, God's calling you to be a shepherd and to lead whatever flock that he's given you to him as well as you're able now some cases where we're leaders in areas where we don't really get a great inf a, a large opportunity to bring people to jesus christ but are you at least pointing them in that direction with your actions with your behavior with your talk with your love with your honesty with all of the things that reflect the nature and character of god you can I learned a long time ago that even when I'm not in charge, I can lead people by doing the right thing. By doing what is right, those around me will follow. Not always, but sometimes. God placed you where you are to shepherd the people around you. And it doesn't matter who you are, he's called you to do that. If you're, if you're in a marriage, God has called someone to be the shepherd in that marriage. We're not doing a marriage study right now, so we're not going to get really into it. Guys, pay attention. Um, you know, the families, children, we're to shepherd our children, the shepherd in our community, shepherd in our, in our church, shepherd in our workplaces, everywhere we go. We ought to see ourselves in this role. Now, God has called some specifically to the role of shepherding. I believe I've been called to the role of shepherding. And I, and I you know, when somebody asks me, so what, so what are you? You know, talk about pastors and evangelists and, and all that. So I'm a pastor teacher. That's what I am. I'm a shepherd. That's what, uh, the other word for pastor is shepherd. I'm a shepherd teacher. That's what I am. And I, and I know that. And I know that I'll stand before God and give an accounting for that. He's not gonna, I'm not going to stand before God and say, well, so how did you do as an evangelist? Uh, not very good. But you know, I wasn't called to that. What were you called to? Be that. God placed you where he did for a reason. Interesting, this, I, this, this chapter is interesting because there are some warnings in here, but there are a ton of promises. God will. He says, I will, I will, I will, I will. God promising very specifically to the people of Israel. So we've got to be careful. We don't want to try to, you know, say, okay, God's saying that to me. Yeah, be careful with that. There's a, most of these promises are to the nation of Israel, and we need to leave them with the nation of Israel. Now, some of them will translate or because of the way they're, they're described, there's a broader application that applies also to the church, but most of it is to Israel. In the, in the second half of verse 3, let me read that again. The Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them as his royal horse 
in the battle. It says the Lord will visit his flock. One of the characteristics or, or descriptions of God is omnipresence, right? You heard that term, omnipresence? What does that mean? God is everywhere present all the time. Every, there, there's never a time where God isn't present. So when you read something like that, God will visit. Well, isn't he already there? You know, isn't God already there in that place if he's omnipresent? Anytime you see something like that, and we can look back to when God remembered Noah, same concept here, is that when it says God will visit his flock, that, that, that's speaking of something different. It's speaking of him making his presence known and then acting on their behalf. Israel is God's flock. In Psalm 100, verse 3, it says, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. The Jews are God's people. Always have been, always will be. Never going to change. It says that he is going to visit them and act on their behalf. Now notice that Judah is singled out here. Judah is mentioned, and that's very important, and we're going to see that uh, because Judah is the tribe of the Messiah. The Messiah comes from the tribe of Judah. So as we go through this and through the rest of this, we're going to see that connection there. Verse 4, For him, from him comes the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him, the battle bow. From him, every ruler together. From him, him is Judah. From him comes the corn, from Judah comes the cornerstone. From Judah comes the tent peg. From Judah comes the battle bow. From Judah comes every ruler together. So the question is, Okay, what is that pointing to? What is the cornerstone? What is the tent peg? What is the battle bow? What is, the, you know, what is that every ruler together about? Well, the word cornerstone gives us a clue because Jesus applies that word to himself. In Matthew, it, him, Matthew excuse me, Jesus quoting Psalm 118, 22, said in Matthew 21, 24, 21, 42, yeah, just, I just totally butchered how I was going to say that, but there it is. Matthew 21, 42 says this, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? Jesus regularly quoted the scriptures, the Old Testament. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus applied that title to himself. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the tent peg. Jesus is the battle bow. And Jesus is the king of kings. And so in, in Zechariah, he's saying that all of that is going to come through Judah. He's going to have all of those roles, all of those positions. We don't have time to, to unpack all of those words. But the reality is that's who he's talking about. He's talking about the Messiah. The Messiah will come from Judah. At the time that Zechariah is writing, the nation of Israel, when we think of the nation of Israel, we think of the 12 tribes of Israel. That, that was you know, how they originated. You know, the, the 12 sons of Jacob or Israel became the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel became the nation of Israel. 
Well, the, at, at the time, after, after the reign of Solomon, who was King David's son, there was a break in the kingdom. And, and the, the division was 10 tribes, the northern tribes, they, they separated from Rehoboam, Solomon's son. And so Judah and the 10 tribes, and Levi was scattered around in there as well, um, they were separated. And they stayed separated, have always been separated since then. And one of the, one of the, the, um, the realities is, is that you know, it creates this, this sense of division. It was, it was an issue of battles and conflicts and things went on for hundreds of years. But pick this up in verse five. They shall be like the mighty men who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. They shall fight because the Lord is with them. This is, this is Judah. And the riders on horses shall be put to shame. I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not cast them aside, for I am the Lord their God, and I will hear them. Those of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their heart shall rejoice as if with wine. Yet, yes, their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them and I will redeem them, and they shall increase as they once increased. So we, we started talking about Judah, and then all of a sudden Joseph is thrown into the, into the, into the, the text, and Ephraim. Joseph is one of the ten tribes in the north. Ephraim was one of his sons, but he also represents all of the ten tribes in the north. And so now what we see here in this text, you know, is those ten northern tribes, one of the one of the uh, descriptions of the 10 tribes are as the lost tribes. About 200 years before Zechariah, more than 200 years before, the 10 tribes were exiled to Assyria. You don't really hear about them being returned. And so, you know, they refer to them as the lost tribes of Israel. Well, they're not lost. God knows exactly where they are. He knows exactly who they are because he knows everybody, right? Say, raise your hand if God knows you. But, okay, most of you, good. The rest of you, you're not sure. We'll talk, about, we'll talk to you later. They're not lost. God knows where they are, and he actually has a plan. The book of Revelation talks about all the, all the tribes of Israel and bringing them and reuniting them. And so this, this, is, a, this is this radical thing, is that while the, the northern tribes were exiled because they rebelled against God, they worshiped idols, they did all the things wrong they possibly could until God said, okay, enough is enough. And he exiled them, he punished them. And that punishment has gone on for over 2,000 years. But he's going to bring them back. Not only bring them back, but he's going to flourish them. He's going to, he's going to cause them to increase more than ever before. More than they ever had in all of their history, they're going to flourish more than that. Now it's very likely this refers to that time after the second coming that we refer to as the millennial king the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ, a thousand years of perfect peace on the earth where, where the, where the well, Jews will be reunited and will flourish on the earth. These are promises. These are promises from God. Let's pick it up in verse 9. I will sow them among the peoples, and they shall remember me in far countries. They shall live together with their children, and they shall return. These are promises. God says, I'm going to sow them. I'm going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to spread them out all over the way. I'm going to scatter them all over the world. 
but then I will bring them back. I will whistle, it said in verse 8, and gather them. I will redeem them, and they shall increase. And then they shall remember me. That's a, that's a promise. They shall remember me. They shall live, and they shall return. That's a promise. It's, it's a radical thing that God is so gracious. No matter how far somebody might wander, in this case, the far countries, they're going into the far countries, God can get them back. Love that. Love that. Not only is he going to bring them back, but he is going to bless them abundantly. The promise to continue, verse 10. I will also bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no more room is found for them. A number of nations are, are named here, and a couple of them, especially the first two, are, are symbolic. Egypt is a symbol of the slavery of the Jews. When they were in Egypt, they became slaves. It's also often used symbolically to describe the world, but in this case, it's referring to the, to the slavery of the Jews. And, and God's saying, hey, I'm going to bring them out of that. Then no longer will they be slaves. No longer will they be in bondage. And then Assyria is a, is a symbol of the exile or of God's punishment. That, that while they deserved punishment, there was a time coming in the future, I'll bring them out of that, and they will no longer need to be punished. The two, the, uh, two other areas, Gilead, is the area that we know today as the Golan Heights. And so it's that area on the, on the outskirts of the nation of Israel, that that's going to be theirs. And then Lebanon is the, is the country, the nation north of Israel. And what, it, what he's saying here is that I'm going to bring them back into the land, and I'm going to bless them so much that they're going to run out of room. And they're going to need more room. And God says, and I'm going to give it to them. Again, this is probably pointing to the time of after the second coming. Then we're told how God will make this happen. Verse 11. He shall pass through the sea with affliction and strike the waves of the sea. All the depths of the river shall dry up. Then the pride of Assyria shall be brought down and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. Before Jesus comes back in what we refer to as the second coming, the first coming was when he came as a man and ultimately died on the cross for us. Before he comes back the second time, he is going to deal with the sin in this world. He's going to deal with the wickedness that is prevalent upon this planet. Anytime we see the word the sea in, in used in certain contexts, it's often referring symbolically to all of humanity. It says, going to pass through the sea with affliction. Another, another word, another way that affliction can be translated is tribulation that should ring some you know some bells in some of your mind if you went through the revelation study there's a time of revel of tribulation coming described to us in the book of revelation as well as other places where god intends to remove every hindrance for his from his people anything that stands in the way from god's people coming to him he's going to remove it all in Isaiah 11, 15, and 16, it says this, the Lord will utterly destroy. How, how complete do you think that destruction might be? 
complete, utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, meaning, again, Egypt being symbolic of the world. With his mighty wind, he will shake his fist over the river. Anytime you see the river like that, especially capitalized, it's referring to the Euphrates River in that area around Assyria and ultimately um, in um, wherever it is today, Iraq. And strike it in the seven streams and make men cross over dry shot, meaning on dry, with dry feet. They're going to cross the river. It's going to be dried up. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people. Who are his people in this context? The Jews, thank you for saying it out loud, who will be left from Assyria. That means those that are still scattered around the world as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt, just like God delivered the people out of Egypt, he's going to deliver them from the, this, this, this greater exile that they've been on. God will deal with the evil in this world and make it possible for his people to return to him as he wishes. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a hard time. One of the ways that the, the, the tribulation is described in the Bible is the time of Jacob's trouble. It's going to be hard to live through um, the, the, the judgments that are falling. The world is, is being judged by God for its evil and wickedness and, and rejecting God and hating Jesus. God's going to judge this world. It makes it very clear to us. The world cannot escape it. It's going to come. And so God makes another promise to his people. Verse 12, so I will strengthen them in the Lord and they shall walk up and down in his name, says the Lord. God has this glorious plan for the people of Israel. He's gonna cause them to return to him and, and to walk up and down in his name. The idea of being able to just to walk freely in his name without fear, without, without oppression, he will strengthen them to walk with him in holiness. And back in verse 6, we are told why the Lord will do this. Verse 6. I will bring them back, it says, because I have mercy on them. I have mercy on them. The prophet Micah ends his book with these thoughts on God's mercy, which we just finished just this week. We finished the book of Micah, moving into 1 John in two weeks, so don't miss it. Tuesday mornings, 10 o'clock, shameless plug. Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like you? This is the prophet marveling at, at God and his mercy. Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. That again is the Jews. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. When God gives mercy, it's not this, you know, oh, come on, Randy, I got to give you mercy again. No, he delights in mercy. It makes him happy to show mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. Oh, yeah, I just like, I want to spend like a month meditating on that one phrase. He will subdue our iniquities. Oh, spend some time with that one. 
you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Somebody say hallelujah. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from of old. The prophet saying, you made promises to our fathers, to our ancestors. Therefore, we can rest in them. We can take them. We can believe them. We can go forward. We can rejoice in them. We can marvel and be, be just blown away by who you are and what you do with your people. God looks upon his people with compassion. And his response is mercy and his amazing promises of care. God looks upon his people and says, man, they are a pitiful mess. If I don't do something, they're, gonna, they're just going to they're just going to implode. I need to do something. And so God has this sense of compassion. He cares about his people. Now, again, these promises, the promises of God are for God's people. God's people. No unbeliever can go into the Bible and claim any promises God makes to his people. He makes them to his people to, to, to hold on to, to claim and to cling to the promises of God. You must be one of his people. Yeah, as God looks down upon humanity, all he can do is pity them because no one, no one can save themselves. No one can take care of themselves. No one can solve all of their stuff. They are helpless. And as an expression of his compassion, he made a way for anyone who will believe, anyone who will believe to become one of his people. God makes all these great and amazing promises and then limits it to his people. But then he says, but it's really not that hard to be one of my people. Just believe. Believe. The way to be one of God's people is through faith in the sacrifice of his son, Jesus, when he went to the cross for our sin. We were all helpless, lost in our sin. There was nothing we can do. We were pitiful. There was a day when I would have, I would have rebuked you for saying that about me. I'm not pitiful. I can do whatever I want except save myself. Romans 11 teaches us that through faith, we are grafted into the family of God. Which means that many of the promises that God made to his chosen people do also apply to us. Not all of them. Not all of them. Don't get all replacement theology on me. Randy will, re will rebuke you. But some of them do. And it's up to us to know them. To stand on them. And as one of God's children, we are now blessed with the exceedingly great and precious promises, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. As we prepare to conclude this message, early, by the way, just in case I want you to note that, 
I'd like you to think about something. It was God's compassion that resulted in him showing us mercy and making a way for us to be one of his people, to make a way for us to be able to experience and to, and to hope in his promises. The greatest of those is forgiveness of sins and eternity in heaven. What should we do with that? How should we respond to God's compassion? Well, we, should, we ought to be thankful, right? Anybody, does that, does that sound like a, you know, I, you know, thank you God for saving me kind of a thing? That would be a good start, but is that all? As God's children, through faith in Jesus, we ought to be compassionate. How compassionate? How compassionate should we be? Well, if we're called to be like Christ, he seems to be our standard for that. We should be as compassionate as Christ. And to say it another way, just to make it really impossible, we should be as compassionate as God. And, let's be honest, anybody want to be honest today? That would be zero. Thank you. Wow. I'm preaching at you. I'm, I'm getting to you now. I'm getting, I'm getting into the real stuff. We don't know how to do that. We don't know how to be that compassionate. None of us does. No, none of us knows how to be as compassionate as God. Well, let me give you a little, little news. You can't be as compassionate as God. But we are called to be more compassionate. We're called to care more. The reason why we can't be more compassionate because we can't do the work that makes us more compassionate. It is a work of God in your heart. You know, this is coming from a guy who early in my ministry was nicknamed Pastor Grinch. It's the truth. Because the people I was ministering to didn't think I cared. Not, not, that I was, not that I was uncaring, but I just didn't, I didn't emote any care. They could say whatever they want, you're, you're crying to me. Uh-huh, okay, whatever. I'm pretty much still like that, but that's, I actually feel it a little differently. How do we change that? As I, as I was growing as a pastor, I remember having a conversation with God. God, I'm a pastor the one complaint that I've heard more than any other about me, and I've gotten like three in my lifetime, <laughs> is I'm not compassionate enough. And I take that seriously. And so I go to God and say, God, I mean, what's the deal here? I want to serve God. I want to I serve him with my whole heart. I want to I give my whole life to God. How come I'm not more compassionate? How come I don't care like you care, God? And I had to resign myself. I'm still waiting for God to do that work inside of me. I'm trying to get out of his way as much as I possibly can. But that's what it takes. You have to go to God and say, God, I want to be compassionate. I want to care like you do. That's the very first step. Is We've got to ask God to help us care. God has to do that work. 
I would encourage you, there's a verse I'd like you to maybe write down somewhere, take a picture of, however you're going to remember this, Ezekiel 36, 26, and ask God. Pray it as a prayer for yourself. I will give you a new heart, this is the Lord speaking, and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now he's speaking to hard-hearted people, but the concept is still true. If there's a reason why you don't care the way you should, it's because something's wrong with your heart. And the only person that can fix that is God. And you need to ask him, God, fix my heart. Here's the deal. Every single time something comes into your view, you need to ask your God. Ask God, how should I care about this? Now, now God's not going to ask you to respond to every single thing that comes into your life because you can't. You're not God, right? Any of you, right? We recognize you're not God. You can't care about everything like God does. You can't be doing everything as God is doing everything. You can only do your bit. You need to ask God. God, do you want me to care about this? And if so, how? What should I feel first? And then how should I respond? How do I show mercy here in this situation? For this situation, that that situation is hopeless, helpless. They need something. Have you put me here to deal with that? And you ask him. You ask God, show me. And I'm promising you, he will, not make, he, will not, he will not ask you to fix everything. You know why? Because you can't. But he did put you on this earth to do some things. And the only way to know how to do it is to ask him to do something inside of you, to change your heart to be more like his. And then once you do that, every time you see something, you ask God, should I care? Should I care more than I'm actually feeling like I care about this? The reason why I asked Debbie to share the story this morning, I couldn't have shared it like that. I don't care the same way that she does. I'm different. I care. I care a lot, but not in the same way that she does. And God made us all different for a reason. But you need to let him do that work inside of you. And once he does that side in you, you let him lead you to what you should be caring about, where you should be being used by God to show mercy to those around you. Amen? Heavenly Father, we do come thanking you for your grace, your mercy. We thank you for your compassion, God, because you care, not just for the, the, the Jews, but you care, you care about the whole world. And it's your desire that all of the world would, would be in a place where you could express your mercy to them. And Lord, you're, you are so good. You do, you do show mercy to, the, to, the, to those that are far from you. You, show, you pour your grace out on the whole world. But Lord, these promises that you've made, we know those, those go to your people. And anyone who wants to experience those promises, wants to cling to those promises, needs to be one of your people. And so I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who has not, not made that decision to be one of your people, that they would do that right now. They'd realize that they, they're trying to live their life their way, and it doesn't work like that. That, that they, they are woefully inadequate to the task 
of controlling their lives and the things around them. But with you, God, we can rest in you. We can rest in your power, your grace, your mercy, your love, your, your, your peace, your hope. Lord, all of those things that you promised to your people. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would, that you would touch anyone heart, anyone's heart here who has, does not know you, that they would yield themselves to you. And for those of us that do know you, Lord God, as, even as I, I pray regularly for myself, Lord, Lord, work on my heart that I might have more compassion, that I, might, that I might care more like you do, that I might be able to, to be the conduit of mercy that you created us to be. And that, Lord, if we maybe have not done that work or allowed that work to be done, that we would, we would humble ourselves before you and open ourselves up to let you do what you want to do in our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that you would lead us and guide us, that as we look around this world, that our response to whatever it is would be to care and try to care like you do and then ask you, Lord, what would you have me to do in this situation? How would you have me feel about this? And as we do that, Lord God, I, I, I pray, Lord, that, that we become more and more conformed into the image of your Son that this world might see and know and believe. And through believing, Lord, that they might also become a part of your family, just as we are. We love you, we praise you, and we lift this day up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this exciting journey through the book of Zechariah. It is our hope that these messages will help you to grow in your faith. If there's anything that we can do to help you with that, don't hesitate to connect with us. You can do that by going to calvaryfv.com connect, and you'll find all the ways that you can connect with us there. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. And one of the ways that we would like to engage with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know how we can be praying for you. You can send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word pray to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com slash give or text the word GIVE to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus.